This is Maine Coast Doc Talk, a podcast bringing you the latest news and stories from Maine's working waterfronts. This podcast is brought to you by the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. I'm your host, Ben Martens. It's April 1st, 2016, April Fool's Day, and welcome to another episode of Maine Coast Doc Talk. I'm Ben Martens. I'm here with Monique Coombs. And uh, we've got an awesome show today. It's very timely. I'm going to be interviewing Michael Conathan, who's the uh, Marine Policy Director for Center for American Progress. And he's talking with us about the monument discussion in the Atlantic Ocean right now. There is a, a push from some environmental groups to close down some big areas using the uh, Antiquities Act from the president's, uh, from the White House. And so we talked with him about getting into some of those details, the process, what that looks like, and uh, why some fishermen have been against that proposal. But first, before we dig into the interview, let's uh, talk about some news with Monique. Okay, the article that I found that I wanted to talk about, I have to say upfront that I'm not sure if it's for real or not. Because so, of today's date? Because it's April Fool's Day, the worst day of the year. I don't like practical jokes. Um, but apparently, Kit Kat in Japan has put out some seafood flavored Kit Kats, uh, including like shrimp and lobster and some fin fish, to the point where, on according to the, the company, they have a, a person, hold on, let me look, that is their uh, odd flavors manager. Oh, I want that title. Right? Yeah. That's kind of like a cool job to have. Um, that consumers should be aware of bones in the product. So that's real. That's so maybe it's real, but it's like Kit Kat with an extra crunch and some funky flavor. So perhaps we'll find out later this month if it's for real or not. But for today, let's just pretend. Well, so is. my one of my cousins is living in Japan right now, and they'll send out like Instagram photos of stuff. And Kit Kat has the craziest flavors in Japan. It's like wasabi is on the tame side when you start digging into all the different colors and flavors of stuff they've got in the Kit Kats. I, I don't know the last time that I actually had a Kit Kat in the United States, but uh, apparently the Japanese love them. Yeah, I had a green tea Kit Kat, um, and it was funky. I couldn't tell if I liked it or not, so I ate the whole thing. <laughs> And I'm still not sure. So, you know, mm, if you're you cousin, I ate it all and I still don't know. <laughs> so maybe that's their hook is like you just have to keep eating them to figure out if you like them or not. And like that, that so it doesn't matter that's, what flavor it is. That tends to be how I deal with food. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to keep <laughs> eating just keep this eating it. It'll be fine. It'll be I totally like it. fine. So did you say it was your cousin? Yeah. Maybe yeah. he or she could hook us up with some Oh, that's a great idea. Cat. We'll get him. We'll get him to send over some. I'm sure um, that's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Right. I mean, are there some different importation about seafood laws, potentially, if there's maybe. too much, right? Yeah, maybe that becomes, I don't know. I don't think so, but Probably not. we should just, Andy. even All if right. it's just the wrapper for proof. All right, so we'll, we'll update everybody when yeah. we, we get some of that. Serious business. Uh, and so just quickly on the, the business card side and the, the title of, so one of the, the people that we all collectively know is a, a gentleman by the name of Barton Seaver who has done some work with National Geographic. He's a, a chef and you know awesome guy, but he has a business card from National Geographic that just says Explorer. And I love that. Like, what would be a, one word for our business cards? 
awesome? I don't, <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> question mark, probably. Yeah, awesome, awesome with question, question mark. mark. Yeah, I think that's the way it is. Um, yeah, that is no. very cool. So the article that I wanted to quickly touch base on uh, is, I don't believe, this came out March 30th, so I don't think that it's an April Fool's. But it's uh, about how the number of fish in the oceans could more than double by 2050. And I don't know if you remember back, but a few years ago, there was this whole big thing about how we were going to completely deplete our marine resources by 2050. Yeah, and that so was like last month, wasn't it? That well, that they, they release it all the time. But, yeah. Um, and so it was kind of interesting that there is this new report from the uh, National Academy of Sciences that has come out that says that by 2050, we could increase by double the amount of fish in the oceans. And so I, I started reading into it, looking at the, um, the work that was being done and, and some of the, the press around it. And it's really all about the idea of catch shares. And this is something that we're going to actually, uh, after reading this, I want to dig into that in another podcast. But catch shares are a way of basically taking what is you know, the commons and the tragedy of the commons that we've dealt with and all under, heard about in high school and whatnot, and, and giving a, a ownership to those going out and extracting the resources. And so it's giving something to a fisherman and saying, okay, you now are you know, taken care of and owned, so you have more ownership over a piece of the resource. And so the big argument of this whole thing is that if you give ownership to the fishermen over the resource, then they're gonna take better care of it. And that's a way to rebuild the fish stocks is through catch shares. Um, this is something that we work with a lot in New England with the groundfish fishery, but it is also something that many fishermen are actually against because they don't really like the idea of privatizing the resource. And so th it's kind of that yin and yang of it's better for the environment potentially, it makes some winners, it makes some losers, um, but it's also really difficult to think about the next generation of fishermen. It, it can cause consolidation within the industry and, and whatnot. So it was an interesting article. Uh, there, there's definitely some politics behind it and something that I'm, I'm actually really think will be a, a great podcast in the future. Can I ask a question about that? Not so much the content, but it, when it comes to the two different articles that say two different things, how does a consumer going, go about reading that and understanding the fisheries in a way where there's two sort of, I don't want to say extremes, but two varying stages? I mean, that happens a lot in fisheries. They're good. They're bad. It's decimated. We're overfishing. We're not overfishing. This is fine. That's not fine. If you, where would you go to get like the right information and ask the questions and stuff? Um, probably us. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. You? Uh, yeah. Me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm probably the guy to talk. No, I think that it's. Honestly, they're, they're both probably right. And yeah. it's finding it's, that middle ground. Well, and it's, it's also, it's kind of that back to the future thing, right? And like both realities exist out there depending on the decisions that we make moving forward. Yeah. And if we make the right decisions and it doesn't necessarily have to be catch shares, but it probably means stewardship minded fisheries um, management in the process and thinking about leaving more fish in the ocean next year uh, and the year after and the year after. And I, and I think that that's really, you know, it's like, all right, what, what future do we want to be building and how do we get there? And that's why right now we, we don't have a clear path forward. And that's why you can have an article one month that says we're not going to have any fish in the ocean in 25 years and another article that says we're going to have double. Um, it really depends on the decisions that are made in the, the management process as we move forward. Cool. So I think that those are the two things. Is there any, any other, you know, April Fool's things that no, no, no April right. Fool's things for All right, sure. Thank goodness. No. Yeah. So next we're going to go into the uh, 
interview that I did with Michael Conathan, and uh, then we'll come back with Monique and I. It's any response to that interview. As just a, a quick aside, uh, I wanted to point everybody to our blog where you can go and check out a map, uh, or as the fishermen call it, a chart that shows where in the Gulf of Maine Michael and I are talking about when we get into that in the interview around Cash's Ledge. So go check that out uh, on our website, maincoastfisherman.org, and uh, enjoy the rest of the podcast. I'm here today with Michael Conathan, who's the Director of Ocean Policy for the Center of Amer- for American Progress. And uh, Michael, I brought you here to talk a little bit about national monuments, and that might be a little bit weird for uh, a podcast that focuses on commercial fishing, but there's currently this movement around protecting some areas of the Atlantic Ocean. And I was hoping that you know we could talk today with you about the monuments, uh, how those might be used to protect areas, and, and how it's currently being used in other areas of the country. But let's uh, let's first dig into like a little bit of background on who who you, on you who you are and and you know why you're involved in in this discussion right now. Sure, uh, thanks, Ben. Um, so uh, as you mentioned, I run the Ocean Policy Program uh, at an outfit called the Center for American Progress, which is a um, it's a policy advisory group, um, more colloquially referred to as a think tank, um, down in Washington, D.C. Um, I've been with that organization for a little over five years now, uh, although for the last about three years, I've been living in South Portland, Maine. Uh, and before uh, I went to work at CAP, as we call it, um, I had formerly worked for um, Maine Senator Olympia Snow and was her lead uh, staffer on the uh, Senate Subcommittee on Oceans, um, Atmosphere, Fisheries, and Coast Guard, which she chaired or served as ranking member of for over a dozen years. And, and how long were you were you with the senator again? Uh, I was with her for about five years as well. So nice. going back from about uh, yeah, started in uh, 2006 and and uh, managed to ride the tail end of the last Magnuson reauthorization and uh, and then stuck with her for about four years after that. So. And so now you're with Center for American Progress, this think tank, and one of the things that you guys have thought of, along with a number of other uh, nonprofit organizations and environmental groups, is finding ways to protect marine, uh, marine sanctuaries and, and other areas in, in the Atlantic. And so this is where the monument discussion comes into it. Uh, how do monuments work? Why is a, a Antiquities Act being used to try and protect marine areas? Um, you know, fill us in on a little bit of that. Sure. Um, so the Antiquities Act uh, is a tool that Congress uh, gave to the president uh, back in 1906. Uh, it was initially passed. And, and the idea was that um, the, the, the Congress wanted to give the president the authority to permanently protect uh, areas that had scientific or cultural or, um, or natural value. Uh, in and of themselves. Um, and that's been used since 1906 by uh, almost every president uh, to protect areas, um, starting with places, iconic places like uh, the Grand Canyon, um, Devil's Tower, uh, Yosemite. Uh, these areas were all originally uh, designated as marine monuments before they became national parks. Um, it had never been used to protect ocean resources, uh, actually, until um, 2000. 2008, uh, when George Bush um, used it to protect some large areas in um, U.S. territories in the far Pacific Ocean. Um, So some areas around um, places like uh, Wake Island and Palmyra Atoll and the Northwest Hawaiian Islands um, and uh, some uninhabited islands um, primarily out in the uh, in the far Pacific Ocean. 
And what, and what kind of protections are, are you allowed to put on to these types of areas? Well, the, the act really gives the president broad authority to, um, to determine what activities will and, and will not occur in these areas. Um, historically, um, or at least in, in uh, historically, if you can call 2008 history, I guess it is at this point, um, the uh, areas that have been protected in the ocean have typically been closed to all commercial fishing activity and all commercial extractive activity. Um, they, ha they do allow uh, some recreational fishing to occur um, with... Um, uh, with restrictions put in place to, you know, it's not just unfettered access. And of course, these are areas that we're talking about that are, you know, um, hundreds, in some case, thousands of miles from, from civilization. So it's a little tough to get your uh, Boston whaler out there. Um, but in general, it, it gives the, the president primarily through the Department of Interior uh, the authority to restrict um, activities in, in these areas or not, as he sees fit. It, it really is, a, you know, as laws used to be kind of back in the, in the early 20th century and before, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very simple document um, and really elegantly crafted. As a result, it, it gives the, the president fairly sweeping authority. And so the, the commercial uh, fishing is the easiest one to understand, but it does – the, the extractions that you mentioned, that would be things like oil, gas, sand. Is there anything else that, that kind of falls under that category or are those the, the big ones? Yeah, I mean, the current ones are obviously oil and gas, uh, sand and gravel mining, um, uh, bio prospecting uh, is an emerging issue in marine, uh, emerging industry, marine bi biotechnology. Um, also, any kind of seabed mining, uh, you know, uh, manganese and some of these rare earth oh, metals sure. can be found in large quantities on the seabed and, and uh, methane hydrates, things like that. I mean, things that are a little more um, kind of forward looking industries uh, would also be restricted. And then this, this is a kind of a weird question. But so if a president goes out and declares a national monument, is that set forever or is there opportunity like if we get President Trump, could he come in and get rid of all national monuments or you know, what, what type of process is there to, to put one into place and then potentially remove one? Uh, is there something that exists like that or not? Um, you know, as I understand that, I, I, I don't you know, I, I don't think there is a specific clause that says, you know, things that are done can never be undone. Um, but I think the the. There, there is no precedent for a monument being designated and then being undesignated. Um, as, I, as I said, some of them do become national parks and have become national parks, but that requires an act of Congress. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't believe a president has ever rolled in and, and, uh, and just ditched any of the, of the previous monument designations, although I suppose all bets could be off if there were a President Trump. <laughs> true, true. And so right now the way that it goes is basically a president can use this uh, the Antiquities Act to go in and it's, it's through presidential order. Is that correct? So he just yep. signs a piece, piece of paper and, and it's done. Yeah, it can, it can be that simple. Uh, you know, that, that authority exists. I think, you know, it, presidents are careful uh, about that, obviously, and, and they always have been. And I, th I, I think they always will be. I mean, there is, there are certainly, uh, there are members of Congress um, who uh, particularly members from Western states, uh, the, the larger areas that have been protected are primarily in the Western states because those are the places where large areas exist that are either in federal control or um, otherwise available to to protect. And and so some Western members have you know made you know several efforts uh, in the past several years to um, to repeal or or amend the Antiquities Act to require some additional congressional oversight. Those have so far been unsuccessful, um, and and I think. But that, that just sort of speaks to this threat that, 
you know, while technically a president could just show up and tomorrow and say, you know, uh, um, the entire Gulf of Mexico is now closed to oil and gas drilling um, and all other extractive activities. Um, there would be such a, a hue and cry about that, that, you know, that would basically um, cause Congress to immediately you know, rescind all authority under the uh, under the Antiquities Act and probably repeal the, the law entirely. So there is this sort of natural check and balance, um, which is the the threat that Congress could um, take the power away from the president. It's they've given it to him and and uh, and they can take it away. So, um, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the president does, is the is the decision maker on this and. Um, uh, he can decide to uh, to designate a, uh, an area or not. Um, with the areas that, that President Obama has been looking at, both on land and, and now, as you mentioned, um, a little bit in the ocean, they really have set up a, a, um, a process, uh, I guess, um, although I wouldn't necessarily call it any kind of um, you know, official set in stone process. But what they have typically done is is allowed for um, opportunities for the public to weigh in on proposals. Um, and typically, uh, with the land-based monuments, the proposals have come uh, primarily from um, elected officials who have these areas in or near their districts. Um, and, and the elected official will, uh, you know, suggest to the president in some sort of public fashion, either through introducing legislation or um, writing a letter or in some other way, uh, that they would like a certain area to be considered for a national monument. And then they uh, there will be local support generated for that, and there will be opportunities for the public to weigh in and comment on that, both in support and, and in opposition. Um, and then the president listens to those comments, and, and ultimately the, the decision gets made following that process. Well, so that, that, that's I think that really clarifies, for me at least, the process that we're looking at and, and dealing with right now. So let's dig into what's happening in New England and yep. the, the Atlantic area. So there's a proposal on the table right now uh, that's been bouncing around for several months to, to close a couple of areas um, on George's Bank and in the Gulf of Maine, uh, I believe maybe potentially a little bit further south as well. But do you want to outline what those proposals look like? And, and I don't know if you can give a little history in terms of where the proposal actually came from. Sure. Um, so the areas that we've been talking about um, in the last, oh, you know, I don't know, year or so uh, have been a couple of areas in uh, the North Atlantic. Uh, and, and I should point out that, that uh, there are currently no um, marine national monuments in the waters of the continental United States anywhere. Um, and in fact, in the, in the Northeast, there are, there are no areas, uh, that are permanently protected from, um, from extractive activities. So the entire ocean, um, is, uh, now open, obviously in, in the fisheries case, subject to jurisdiction of the, um, uh, the National Marine Fishery Service and the New England Fishery Management Council uh, in the Northeast and the other councils in, in other areas. Um, but the areas that that we're that have been talked about for um, for monument designations in this region, obviously um, the one that has been in the news most recently, uh, your listeners have likely seen the stories about Cash's Ledge, um, yep. and yep. In, in that instance, uh, the area that that uh, has been discussed is is already well identified by uh, by by um, fishing industry, and that's the Cash's Ledge closed area, which has been closed to most ground fishing um, for about 13 years now. And then the other areas that we've talked about are um, there are uh, offshore canyons uh, and seamounts that are actually off the backside of Georgia's Bank, um, and you know, these things are these are amazing uh, geologic features. These are these are canyons that are uh, deeper than the Grand Canyon um, that that just 
drop away off the back of George's Bank all the way down thousands of feet um, to the abyssal plain uh, in a relatively short lateral distance. Um, and then in, and then the only four seamounts, underwater mountains, um, that uh, exist in the United States Atlantic uh, uh, Atlantic Ocean Territory, the exclusive economic zone that we have jurisdiction over. They're the only four uh, out there, and they are mountains that rise up from the seabed. And they're, uh, if they were on land, they would be the tallest mountains east of the Mississippi, all taller than uh, than Mount Washington. Um, and it, they just have these remarkable features about them. They're, you know, uh, thousand-year-old corals that grow off the walls of these canyons, and and just uh, incredible ecosystems that exist down there that are even still, in some cases, relatively unexplored. And so we are actually, uh, we'll have a, a blog post that goes along with this that will have access to some maps and some other graphics like that that uh, we've been able to get uh, to give people an idea of where these these features are. And the seamounts and the canyons, I believe, right now have the most support around those protections. So let's kind of dig into Cash's Ledge, because I think that's where most of the discussion has really focused and, and where there's been some, some give and take between the fishing industry, the environmental community, and now the White House has started to, to engage around that discussion as well. So uh, let's chat a little bit more about, about Cash's, and, and I don't know if you want to give a brief update on what that area currently looks like and, and the current protections that exist there. Yeah. Um, so the current, yeah, absolutely. The cash, current Cash's Ledge closed area um, is roughly a, a, sort of like an upside down ice cream cone shape, I guess. It's kind of triangular with a bulge on the bottom. Um, and it encompasses Cash's Ledge, which is um, sort of a, a mini seamount almost within the Gulf of Maine basin um, that rises to a peak. It's only about 40 feet below um, the surface of the ocean at its, at its tallest. And, and Cash's ledge itself, uh, the ledge includes um, what is currently the, the largest um, contiguous uh, kelp forest in uh, still existing in the Gulf of Maine. Um, the area itself expands beyond just Cash's ledge. It, there's an area um, known as Fippany's Ledge to the west, and uh, another um, uh, ledge feature that sort of goes up to the north from Cash's Ledge. So it forms this kind of uh, triangle. Um, and within that area, it's relatively small. It's about 500 square miles. Um, uh, and within that area, it actually encompasses um, over a half dozen uh, completely distinct and different types of habitat. Uh, and because it's been closed for um, over a dozen years, 13 years, I believe, at this point, mm -hmm. um, it also includes some of the... Um, the healthiest remaining cod populations anywhere in the Gulf of Maine. And it's one of the last refuges for, um, you know, what, uh, what marine biologists call the, um, the old fat females, which are really the, uh, the, the broodstock of, of, uh, of any fisheries resource. And, and there are actually some big old fat cod in there that, that you really don't see anywhere else in the Gulf of Maine these days. Um, there's currently uh, a, a little bit of fishing activity that continues in there. Primarily there, there's some offshore lobster fishing there, um, the uh, pelagic uh, uh, folks, the tuna and swordfish uh, industry, will uh, follow the, those fish into the uh, into the area, um, and the herring fleet will occasionally fish in there as well. But for the most part, it's been it's been closed. And and uh, you know, I think one of the things that's worth noting here is that in looking for areas to designate as potential monuments, and it, it, you know, we certainly look for places of um, great biologic biological diversity and, and geological diversity and that have all of these amazingly cool scientific features. Um, but we also want to look for areas that, that are going to have the least economic impact on 
um, the fishing industry, uh, which obviously is a is a fundamental uh, part of the New England economy, and you know clearly, uh, as will be news to nobody, is is really um, suffering, particularly in the ground fish industry, from some some really difficult economic circumstances at the moment. Uh, and so, in looking for areas to potentially designate, um, you know, you want areas that are relatively undisturbed. Uh, you don't want to, if, you know, if you're if you're creating a, a national park or a monument to to uh, to recognize the glory of redwood forests, you don't start with a place that's already been clear cut. You go to the place where the redwoods actually still exist, um, and so that's clearly one feature. And the other feature is we want to go someplace where um, the fishing industry isn't already relying on um, mm-hmm. to uh, to you know continue their trade. Uh, and so Cash's Ledge, you know, with as the closed area, is is one of those places. Um, the council actually uh, last year voted to keep ca- the entire Cash's Ledge closed area closed in its um, omnibus habitat amendment, uh, although uh, it did um, clearly establish a portion of it, a large portion of it, as a mortality closure. And um, there have been some comments from folks in the fishing industry, uh, public comments, that they would very much like to get back into caches as soon as the cod populations rebound. Um Frankly, I, to me, it seems like once the cod populations have rebounded, you won't necessarily need to fish in Cash's Ledge because there'll be cod everywhere else. Uh, and until that happens, I think having closed areas like Cash's, and science has shown this, um, can really actually help support cod populations uh, and other groundfish populations outside the closed area. Well, so let's uh, – I, I want to get back to talking about the, the fishing industry's pushback to this proposal in a, in a minute because I think that that's actually really interesting because it's, it's an area that's already closed, yet there's pushback from – um, you know, basically around the process from a lot of the fishing industry. Before we get there, I, I do want to quickly kind of, you know, one of the things that was interesting to me that you said was a lot of the national monuments that have been designated have come from proposals from the delegations within those areas. Uh, a senator or a representative in an area wants a, to have an area protected. Where did this proposal come from and how did it get through to the White House as, as something that they should be thinking about? Sure. Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, I think one of the, um, of course, one of the fundamental differences here um, that we're talking about is that these areas are in federal waters. They're they're not even in, in state waters, much less are they um, physically located within a congressional district. Um, so that's a fundamental difference between um, land monuments and, and, uh, and ocean monuments is that the ocean belongs to all Americans, um, whereas, you know, and public lands also belong to all Americans, but they are geographically located um, within a, a certain um, representative's district and obviously within senators' states. Um, so that's one area where when you think about uh, marine monuments as opposed to public lands monuments, um, you just don't have the same direct link to uh, specific members of Congress uh, to, to kind of be the champions there. Um, and I think this proposal, um, you know, when uh, I mentioned that uh, President Bush um, designated marine monuments in the in the far Pacific, President Obama also uh, in, about a, a year and a half ago um, expanded uh, one of those monuments, or actually a series of those monuments, but what are called the Pacific Remote Islands, um, and expanded the existing areas to uh, encompass what at the time was then the largest uh, network of marine protected areas anywhere in the world. Um, and these areas cover, uh, in some in the Pacific, about 330,000 square miles. Um, so, you know, really large areas, but again, that's fairly easy to do when, when nobody lives there and very few people were actually uh, using them. Um, so when President Obama made this designation, uh, he also indicated, or his, um, his uh, then senior advisor, John Podesta, um, 
uh, who I should say was the uh, founder of the Center for American Progress, uh, mm-hmm. where I now work, um, suggested that the, the president was interested in uh, establishing additional marine monuments um, because of the scientific and, and uh, cultural value that, that they have. Uh, and so we, we, I say we, the, the conservation community. Uh, and, and who would that kind of in, envelop at this point in the discussion? The, the conservation community? Yeah. Uh, in terms of these areas, the the leading organizations um, that have been that have initially that initially put these areas forward for consideration were uh, Conservation Law Foundation, which uh, has been working to protect Cash's Ledge in particular for uh, well over a decade now, and and was um, really instrumental in in helping the council come to the decision that it did uh, to initially close the area, uh, and then the Natural Resources Defense Council, uh, which has been working closely with uh, on the uh, canyons and seamounts area in particular, um, and other organizations have uh, have joined in uh, this coalition, including. Um, um, National Geographic, uh, Pew, uh, Earth Justice, obviously Center for American Progress is playing a role here as well, um, and uh, probably a couple of others I'm forgetting to mention, uh, were initially the ones who, uh, who kind of put this proposal together and, and presented it uh, to uh, the White House as something that, that they would like to consider, and, and also began conversations with uh, elected officials in the region to, um, to get their support for the proposal. Great. I think that, that gives me a, a, you know, that's an interesting way to start thinking about, you know, this is the areas that aren't under any specific jurisdiction when it comes to a senator or representative, but that it was it was really the environmental community that said, all right, this is for everybody. Let's step up and, and talk to the president in his office about this. Um, so getting back to the, the fishing industry, which, you know, these are areas that we're talking about now that while there might not be effort that currently is taking place there, there are places that there was fishing at some point in history where there's many fishermen still participating within the industry that used to fish in these areas. There's many fishermen that seem to want to go back into these areas and go mm-hmm. fishing. Um, what has that process been like from your perspective and the others who have been kind of uh, the champions of this issue, the, the pushback from the industry on either you know the monument or the the you know, what, what I've been hearing a lot of is the process that this is going through. What has that been like? Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a difficult um, conversation. Uh, and I think um, it, it starts from a place where, uh, you know, the, the fishing industry. First of all, I mean, I've worked with the fishing industry up here for, for over a decade. And, and um, I should start by saying that, you know, I, I fully appreciate the value uh, that this industry brings to our communities. It's, it's part of our culture. It's part of our heritage. It's a huge part of our economy, especially in Maine. Um, my wife works on a lobster boat. You know, I, I am, I have very close ties to the, to the fishing industry. And, and, and to give you your, your full props as, you know, a staffer for Olympia Snow, she was a, a great proponent of the fishing industry in Maine. And, and I know that you worked with her on a lot of those initiatives as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I, 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 want to start by saying, first of all, that, that absolutely recognize um, and appreciate the concerns um, of the fishing industry in, in this process. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the industry itself has had, uh, you know, it, it's, it has been one of the few industries um, that operates out in this, in this area, in the, in the Gulf of Maine, forever, basically. Uh, you know, we don't have uh, oil and gas up here. There has not yet been uh, any mining there there is a little bit of sand and gravel extraction that goes on um, and and there is increasing demand for some of those resources and we need to make sure that's managed appropriately um, 
but I think they, you know, the fishing industry also uh, has had fairly, um, you know, I, I hesitate to say unfettered access because that that makes it sound like I don't, <laughs> I don't understand the fact that the regulations they fish under are uh, incredibly burdensome in some cases. And that's not that's not uh, my my goal in saying that. Um, just that they've been sort of the only game in town, and uh, the Fishery Management Council has um, had the, the jurisdiction of, of managing that industry. Um, in this region uh, since it's, it, since it came into existence in uh, in the 70s, and uh, now there's a process that comes down which kind of threatens to supersede that existing process. And um, you know, to be fair, nobody knows what it is because it's not the typical federal regulatory process, uh, and there are no regulations that govern it. Um, so that certainly leads to some confusion uh, and uh, and concern among the industry. I think. Um, we have uh, tried to um, open communications. Uh, the the um, federal agencies that have been involved, NOAA came up to Rhode Island and held a public meeting uh, back in September to hear about it, uh, hear about fishermen's thoughts and other stakeholders' thoughts on uh, on the proposals. Um, and they have had a public comment period open uh, since that time, since September, and have received, I think, over 150,000 comments um, about this area. Um, and uh, a lot of those have been, um, you know, from generated by um, the the environmental uh, groups, and, mm -hmm. and and they've gotten quite a few um, positive responses to to their proposals there. Um, but I think you know clearly there's a lot of crossover anytime you talk about closing areas that uh, that the fishing industry would like to get back into, and we recognize that there's a little bit of uh, fishing that does still go on uh, in and around caches, and there is um, still fishing primarily out of Rhode Island that occurs um, around the heads of the canyons that we're that we're talking about here as well. Um, some of the offshore lobster industry out of Rhode Island uses these areas, um, and uh, there's some red crab fishing that occurs in these areas as well. And so, you know, it's a concern that, that um, you know, we want to make sure that sustainable fishing is allowed to occur um, in as much of the ocean as, um, as it can. Um, but I think we also have to recognize that with with literally not a single square mile um, permanently and entirely protected from um, commercial fishing activity, that uh, there might be room out there to share some of that ocean uh, with uh, with conservation initiatives as well. Uh, and so I think that's really what we're trying to get at here: is is what is the what is the balance that makes sense, uh, and and where can we find some places where we're going to have a relatively minimal economic impact on uh, on the fishing industry uh, and protect some resources that are in vital need of, of protection as uh, as industrial threats could potentially increase in the years to come you know where what direction like where is this going now you know we've heard from one side that you know from the white house saying that this is done um and or that caches is off the table, but then we heard from the green groups again about how important it is to continue to, to fight for this area. Yeah. And so I guess the, the question there is just, well, is it over or is it going to continue to be a discussion that people need to be paying attention to? Yeah, so uh, representatives from the White House Council on Environmental Quality were up in, in New England. They were in uh, uh, Massachusetts and Rhode Island uh, last week, the end of last week. Um, that came just before a, a press conference or a press event that had actually been scheduled um, prior to our um, knowledge that, that the, the White House staff folks were going to be coming up and making the rounds, um, where we were releasing new science that had just been um, 
completed uh, by uh, Scott Krauss, who's a scientist at the New England Aquarium, marine mammal specialist at the New England Aquarium, and Peter Oster uh, from the Mystic Aquarium, who has actually spent time out on the canyons and seamounts and, and uh, benthic ecologist, and, and uh, he's been down in, in uh, Alvin and, and other submersibles and actually seen these areas firsthand. And, and so they looked at and, and aggregated a lot of the data that existed about, about these areas to, uh, to determine you know, just exactly how regularly they were used by uh, by different creatures, what the species diversity was out there, and, and kind of um, add a little bit to the uh, scientific case for protecting these areas. Um, so the event that, that you were referring to, um, the, the press call that took place uh, on Tuesday, um, was really to release that new data and to talk about these areas. And, and the reality is that well, yes, the uh, representatives from the White House have said that um, for the time being, they're not considering uh, Cash's Ledge for monument designation. Um, it, it remains really one of the most spectacular undersea landscapes anywhere in, in uh, certainly in the North Atlantic. Um, you know, it's, it's a unique place and it, it is worthy of protection. The, the conservation groups continue to um, believe that it should be protected and, and they're not going to stop advocating for it. Um, if, uh, you know, we're still optimistic that uh, we can get the president to, to change his mind about that. Uh, and if this president doesn't, then perhaps the next president will. Well, perfect. Michael, I really appreciate you taking the time and walking us through this very complicated process. Um, and, you know, although we, we will be uh, probably opposing some of this on our side, uh, I really appreciate the time and the effort that you guys are putting into, um, you know, protecting and, and getting a better understanding of our marine resources out there. Absolutely. That's what it's all about. Thanks, ben. It is. Thanks so much again, Michael, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. So, Monique, you were able to listen to the interview that I did with Michael. Uh, what, what do you think? Uh, I thought it was interesting, Ben, but I actually have one question. I know as an organization we did some work on this, so I'm curious like, what the fisherman's perspective on everything was. Yeah, and I kind of hinted at that a little bit in the, the interview with Michael is that um, – the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, we actually worked really hard, uh, especially on the caches closed area through the New England Fishery Management Council to keep that area closed. And uh, so many of the fishermen are just weary of this process because it, it seems like such a closed box. You're going to the White House and the president has final say on all of the, the end results of, of a monument. And a monument could mean a lot of different things. It could just mean you designated area for future protections. It could mean you kick everybody out. It could mean that you kick only commercial fishermen out or only mining interests or, you know, there, there's, it basically comes down to whatever President Obama wants to do to create a monument he could do. And, and that has a lot of the fishermen who either historically fished in this area or just have concerns about equity issues. Uh, so if they get kicked out, but the rec fleet's still allowed to go in there, and, and by rec, I mean recreational community, um, is still allowed to go out in there. Uh, there would be some, some concerns around that closed process. And so for a group of fishermen that have advocated pretty uh, substantially on the idea of protections, closed areas, and, and thinking about that in the future, um, you know, this is, this is something that, that they have concerns more about the process than about the actual outcome of, of the decision. So um, that was kind of what I was hinting at when I was talking to Michael, and, and we will continue to be engaged in, in paying attention to this because uh, it th sounds like even though the White House has said that the decision has been made that caches is not going to be open, 
uh, or, or in the final decision for monument status uh, with the, the environmental community pushing on it, we're going to have to continue to pay attention to that issue. For sure. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. So I think that we'll, uh, we'll call it a day on the, that note. And so thank everybody for uh, participating and listening to the podcast. And Michael, especially thank you for taking the time and sitting down with me and going through that. Uh, as a, a quick reminder, uh, we are now live as a podcast on our website at maincoastfisherman.org. You can also find us on Stitcher and on iTunes. I think we're live on iTunes as well, so that's really exciting. Uh, and obviously on SoundCloud as well, which is where we are hosted. Monique, uh, do you have anything that you want to kind of uh, promote, maybe blue drinks or oh, something along those lines? Blue drinks would actually be a good idea. Thanks, Ben. Uh, so the last Thursday of every month here in Maine, we host blue drinks in various parts of the coast. It's an opportunity to enjoy a beverage, say, for example, a beer with colleagues and other people working in the fishing industry, uh, people interested in seafood, anything like that. So let's see, April, uh, we're trying to finalize that location, but in May we'll be at Loyal Citizen in Portland, Maine, and that'll be a lot of fun. So. And, and Loyal Citizen is a, is a t-shirt and clothing company. It is company the coolest t-shirt and clothing company in Portland. So. And so we might have something in the works with them on some t-shirts and stuff yep, too. Yep, we'll so. have, um, we have a couple of our uh, Almighty Cod t-shirts left too, so we can have some of those there for people to purchase. Although people could purchase them online too. They could find us and send me an email and I'd be happy to send them a t-shirt. Great. For more updates on these kind of things, go to our website. Uh, we've got uh, on the, the right-hand side of the, of the homepage, there's updates on the schedule and upcoming events. So please go and check that out. So uh, thank you all once again, and uh, we'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Maine Coast Doc Talk was produced by Emily Tucker and myself. Special thanks to Monique Coombs and Michael Conathan. Maine Coast Doc Talk is a production of the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association.